0: Hey everyone, before we begin, I just want to announce a new science communication project of mine, one that I think many of you will be interested in. The University of Washington's astrobiology program is kicking off a brand new series of public science panels that you can watch and engage in virtually, completely free of charge. The only prerequisites are an internet connection and a curious mind, and like I said, I think if you're listening to this podcast, you already meet those requirements. Panel number one will be on Wednesday, May 26 at 6 p.m. Pacific time. And the theme of this panel will be the burning question, where is the best place to look for life in the universe? Astrobiologists Lucas Pfeiffer, Trent Thomas, Evan Davis, and Adriana Gomez Buckley will debate this topic and answer your questions about the possibilities for life in the universe. Then, at the end, you will get to help decide on the winner. Will it be the red planet, an icy moon, or a world far beyond the solar system? We can't wait to find out what you decide. Oh, and did I mention that I'm going to be hosting and moderating the discussion? Yep, I can't wait to see all of you at this out of this world evening of science and wonder. If you'd like to join us, you can find the Eventbrite link in the show notes. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. Today, we have the second half of my conversation with Trek podcaster and Star Trek novel enthusiast Justin Ozer. Last time, Justin and I covered the scientific themes in the Starfleet Corps of Engineers novellas Ishtar Rising Parts 1 and 2 by Michael A. Martin and Andy Mangels, which was a Venus-centric story. Now, we'll turn to the Starfleet Corps of Engineers novella Balance of Nature by Heather Jarman, in which we visit the homeworld of a species of sentient insectoids called the Nasat which were actually first seen in the original Star Trek animated series from the 70s, but were first named in the books. Then, Justin will share a few honorable mentions for cool scientific concepts from the longer novels, and finally, we'll wrap up with what gives Justin hope for the future. Alright, here we go. All right, Justin. Let's move on to Balance of Nature by Heather Jarman. This is another um, Starfleet Corps of Engineers novella. So, do you want to give us a quick rundown of what happens in this novella and sort of set the stage?
1: Sure. Yeah. So for for this one, it um, it takes place after something really significant happens to the Da Vinci, which is the the ship for the Starfleet Corps of Engineers. So people have some time on their hands. And one of the characters who I really love um, is a Noset, which is kind of like a giant pill bug. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so the, the character that's part of the Corps of Engineers is named, well, P8 Blue is kind of her official name, but people always call her Patty. Um, and she's someone who I, I've loved throughout this whole series because um, she's just like really enthusiastic about, these engineering issues and fixing them and has a great sense of humor and like very kind of likable character and in this she goes back to her home world and i think the reason i chose this one i think it's maybe doesn't have necessarily as many kind of scientific questions around it as ishtar rising which we talked about was about terraforming venus but i thought it was really interesting in just thinking about what would a society be like that is basically you know giant insects like what would that society and civilization look like? Um, and in this novel, you know, this is the first time we're going to, to this home world and finding out about it. It's very much based around what they call the mother tree, which is, it was kind of surprised me in this story. These kilometers high trees, I think is what I read in here. <laughs> so there's like these giant, huge, sprawling trees, and they've kind of built their entire civilizations. They have, you know, all of the housing and buildings and all of that kind of built along the, I I, I try to visualize it too, like, okay, these just like really thick branches or did they just, you know, manipulate things, but their entire civilization is kind of high up in the trees above the forest floor. Um, And in the course of, of this story, we learn kind of more about their society and how it works, which I think is, is pretty interesting, but also kind of at the core of the story is this mystery for what's happening. Some of the Nasset are disappearing. There's this toxin that seems like maybe it's eroding these trees, which are everything to their civilization. So basically, you know, Patty um, gets to be a part of this investigation team trying to figure out what's going on. And, you in the end, they do figure out what's going on, which I think we'll talk about a little bit. But but it's kind of like she goes back to her home world and there's this thing that's threatening her entire society and she has to figure out what it is. And I think she does go about it kind of scientifically trying to figure out, okay, if it's not this, then what about this? And I, I'm thinking, of, it feels like she kind of goes through the scientific method and trying to kind of figure it out for herself. I don't know how you felt about it. That's at least from a non-scientist perspective how it felt to me, but... <laughs>
0: Yeah, I I, I completely agree. Uh, Her investigation of this phenomenon, this mystery is very scientific, and she comes up with a very clever solution to discovering what exactly is going on and where it's coming from, which we can touch upon um, a bit later uh but yeah i i felt that this was a super interesting novella um very different from a lot of other star trek stories which take place um with mm-hmm. with the ship and with the rest of the crew this one's basically just her vacation home to her yeah. homeworld, and uh we get introduced to the nasat uh society and um like you said their civilization is very different because they're essentially a species of insects uh the mother tree idea uh is reminiscent of like how insects are always situated around some kind of like home colony you know termites build their termite mounds and uh wasps have their nests so i feel like these insects being very attached to their mother tree is right in line with that And their society also seemed um, kind of rigid and drone-like and segmented, uh, almost like as if there was a strict division of labor, which we know that certain insect societies here on Earth uh, adhere to, where you have drones and queens and army uh, foragers, um, things like that.
1: I want to add to that as well, because they also very much classify themselves by the color that they are, the color of their shells. I mean, patty is blue, but then there's red and yellow and green and brown. And I thought it was really striking how they're identifying each other that way, like, oh, a yellow security officer came by to do blah, 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 right? Um, I, I mean, that would be like, you know, as humans on earth, identifying everybody by their race, like, oh, you know, this Asian person came by and did this and like, not thinking about the other level of like their name or who they are or whatever. So yeah, it felt very much like they're very much into like classifying each other. Right. Right.
0: Like a caste system almost. It almost
1: felt like that. Yeah. Although I don't know if there's anything explicit in this novella that they treat it that way, but it is definitely like these kind of people do this. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I remember some, some like internal thoughts, I think, something like, oh, yeah, of course a brown would do that. Or, like, oh, yeah. Uh, and then there's the whole other thing where um, P8 Blue or Patty is um, part of the this population of the Nassat Society known as the Quiets. Yes. Um, and essentially, this is a subgroup of the society that are born without the ability to speak. That's what I've been gathering. And um, because P8 Blue was, um, I guess, brought up in some kind of federation linguistic project, uh, she gained the ability to speak. But most quiets never acquire that ability, and they're almost looked down upon or ostracized as disabled. Um, And I think this was a really good from a humanistic point of view, um, a commentary on, like, how we should treat and view people mm-hmm. with disabilities.
1: Yeah, and I want to add to that because there there is some background that the author actually gives, not in the novella, but... One of the things that is a really, really great resource if you're reading you know, these novels, novellas, short story collections is something called Voyages of the Imagination. Have you heard mm. of this, Mike? No, I haven't. Yeah, so it was released in 2006 for the 40th anniversary, so it only goes up to things in 2006, but it basically lists out pretty much every official kind of novel, novella, short story collection published to that point from 1967 to 2006, and they tried to ask every living author at the time to talk about the things that they had written. So there are tons of interviews with, with the authors about this. And they got to interview Heather Jarman about this. And I think what she said for the inspiration is, is interesting. She said, the challenge of balance of nature was how to make the story of a Inosit, an oversized pill bug, compelling. Falling back on the basic rule of storytelling, I looked for a conflict and I found one in my home. The biggest inspiration for the story came from my twin daughters who were diagnosed with dyslexia early in elementary school. They're both brilliantly creative. Rachel draws, paints, and excels in computer graphics. Allison writes, cooks, and designs, and sews clothing, and have exceptional abilities in understanding storytelling and literature. Yet written language has been a challenge to them. They literally had to relearn how to read and understand words, starting at, at phenomes. I watched them struggle and saw how they were treated in the classroom by those who only saw their disability and not their creative genius. I deeply believe that many individuals who are labeled as being disabled or having a disorder simply have brains that are differently wired and that somewhere in the scheme of things, we need those differently wired brains to complete our human family. I transferred some of those same issues that confronted my daughters to Patty. So I thought that was interesting just to know, and it kind of goes into um, what happens in the story, where it's it's essential that these... Um, these quiets help to really uh, figure out what's going on and resolve things, that they're really valuable.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, uh thanks for bringing in that Heather Jarman quote. That is super enlightening and it did shine through quite quite well uh, as the theme of this novella. Um what I thought about from my own personal life um is is not dyslexia but autism. I have a cousin who is autistic. Um and the thing that you know I've learned by interacting with him is that Instead of focusing on devaluing people because they cannot do something relative to the norm, value them for the things that they can, that they bring that are different and that perhaps even exceed uh, what what is considered normal. Uh, and, you know, my cousin, my cousin, Kenny is just absolutely brilliant at math. You, know, you, can, you can ask him a really crazy multiplication problem like 23 times 17 and just like that he'll have it and that's like that's really I, I, I'm really bad at multiplication tables you know <laughs> like I just use calculators um, but, uh, but, but he's got this uh, special ability uh, and I think what Heather Jarman said is absolutely c- correct you know um, this, this neurodiversity that we have I- in society should be embraced and we should look for ways to make our society stronger thanks to, to the diversity that we have around us.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that because I think that that it is it is true. You know, um, I think what happens sometimes is that people see someone who's different or doesn't fit into their conception of things and they don't understand it. But But yeah, different people bring different things to the table and we need a diversity of people if we're ever to, you know... Uh, move society forward or solve really complex problems, right you don't just need people that have a, just one perspective. you need people with a lot of different perspectives to see what they add to it and I thought that was really you know great in this story and that and that kind of shone through for me as well. before I read that quote, I thought that maybe she was inspired by someone that she knew that was autistic, but dyslexia, I think makes sense as well but but yeah, I thought that that was kind of a really a really great message in in this story and you know one of the things that that i felt as well is that you know you have this species a nasa which are these giant pill bugs that i'm sure you know if one appeared to most people they would be scared out of out of their wits but um but it also points to um you know the importance in the federation of of diversity and of accepting people um and and i think that patty is very much accepted by her crew and by people in the federation but maybe not as much by her own society. Because I think in this, in this novel, there are people that are really wary of her because she hasn't been to her homeworld world for a while. She's been out there doing stuff with, with Starfleet and especially like, you know, way out there. in I guess the more kind of rural areas, people aren't as accepting of her. So I think there, there was a really strong theme of that in the, in this novel.
0: So I guess the driving plot of this novel is that the mother tree essentially comes under attack by some unknown entity uh, it's it's starting to die it's uh, suffering from poisoning and Patty's quiet nature as you alluded to before ended up being super important to figuring out the mystery of what was going on yeah uh, Justin do you want to just summarize maybe what what the climax of the story was about
1: sure yeah so I mean I think what ends up happening I, I want to point out first though that that uh, this society seems to have a fear of going out of the trees and what they call to the bottom to the forest floor. It's like, that is not done. And so she has a difficult time convincing them to do that. And the other interesting thing, I think, is that they don't value history. That's just like, you know, that was the past. Who cares? We need to make progress. So I think another strong theme in this story is history is important. And I think, History is also important to doing science, right? You need to know what's come before and how people have thought about things in order to do your work as a scientist, Absolutely. I think, right? Yeah. But 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 this whole culture it, it thought it wasn't important. So, I, I mean, actually what ends up happening is that she has an experience where she's kind of out in the forest and all of a sudden she can't communicate, even though they're trying to figure out what's going on with her and there's these images or things that are going on. But eventually we uh, figure out, based on Patty doing some investigation, actually looking back into the history and looking at some maps of, you know, this township and what it was like before, that there is another species there that I guess had been forgotten about called, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, I think it's Setoac. Um and I imagine them as kind of plant-like creatures. I don't know if that's how you imagine them as well, um, but they... Uh, live on the forest floor and they need the sunlight. And if the Nosset keep kind of expanding outward and building, it's going to block the sunlight and kill them. (laughs) Yeah. So so she figures that out. And it, it was the case in the past that these quiets kind of communicated with them and were able to find out this thing and so there were boundaries like you don't build past this area but it the knowledge had been lost over time so i think they eventually kind of like are going to pull back those settlements and make sure that they they respect this and and remember it so um does that kind of summarize it
0: <laughs> yeah yeah uh, and and it was actually her ability as a quiet to communicate with the Sitoak. It it turns out that only quiets can communicate with this other species on the planet uh, and forge a negotiation and a truce essentially delineating boundaries uh, between the two societies and because uh, the, the Nasat don't record any of their history, they just forgot that there was even this other society and that they had created some kind of boundary between their two civilizations and so when they started exceeding those boundaries uh the sito decided to to take matters into their own pseudopods i think that (laughs) that was (laughs) what they were described as they had these pseudopods so to me i guess they they the uh, the image that i had in my mind was like a slimy slug-like gooey um, oh, but photosynthetic like organism I, I, uh,
1: I had I had in my mind something more like cuz I love the animated series the the phylosians the kind of plant like uh beings from I think it's uh uh Infinite Vulcan <laughs> the one with the giant <laughs> Spock, I think uh but but in, in one of those episodes they they like their heads look like they're plants and they have kind of like leaf like legs and arms. That's how I imagine them. But it could be different. Um, but I, I thought one of the things that was running through this book as well was symbiosis. Yeah. That, that that the Nasut are symbiotic with this mother tree, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what the mother tree might get out of it, but but I, I, so maybe it's not completely symbiotic. <laughs> Hopefully it's not parasitic. But but I I did feel like they're very dependent on that, and the Sato'ak are very dependent on the um, on the Nasat for. For their lives and for what what they can do. So I, I mean, I think there it's this exchange on this planet and recognizing, you know, the contributions that everybody's making toward the, the whole thing. Yeah, that's what it felt like. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And to piggyback on that, um, also themes of environmentalism. Right, you yeah. can't just build with abandon because you're you may be thinking that it's progress because you've uh, you know constructed new amazing things. But if it blocks the the sun from reaching the forest floor where a whole ecosystem and a whole civilization is reliant on that, uh, you could end up having devastating consequences that affect you adverse uh, terribly.
1: Yeah. And and I think about this as, as well. So an example in kind of my own community, I live in El Paso, Texas, kind of on the a bit on the outskirts of, of the city and things have been gradually like expanding outwards and more, you know, shopping centers and houses have been built and things like that. And my mother-in-law lives in an area that's still a little bit out there and not as developed as the other ones, but the kind of expansion has been pushing outward. And, you know, it used to be the case that I would, you know, drive to my mother-in-law's house and you'd see rabbits and road runners and all that kind of stuff, just like stalking around or running across the road or whatever as more construction has come in, you do not see them anymore, and I wonder about that. Have they just been pushed elsewhere? Did they die because of construction activities i don't know it, so I, it it feels like a lot of times these things happen and that we feel as progress, but we 're not taking into account how it's affecting other creatures mm-hmm. and that can that bothered me especially because I could see it on such such a personal level for what I see every day right but yeah there's there's definitely that that theme of of preserving their their environment not expanding too much and i thought it was interesting in the novella they were like oh yeah it was fine to pull back and you know we'll just you know stack things up a little bit more it's not a big deal <laughs> like it wasn't a big hardship for them but they were doing it anyway to expand just just because i guess i don't know <laughs> yeah so uh, i think the other interesting thing in this is that Patty has her larvae that she's been carrying around <laughs> mm-hmm. which I I thought was an interesting idea and I don't know exactly how it works um, among insects but it felt like these larvae had been I don't fertilized at some point but she was carrying them around in a duffel bag possibly <laughs> yeah. for a long time like did, did, not not using a duffel bag but like among insects does does that happen where there are these larvae that um, just can take a really long time for you to do something? with, Or is that just something particular to this kind of sentient species? It felt a little unusual.
0: (laughs) It it did feel a little bit unusual. And I should preface this discussion by saying I'm not an insect biologist by any means. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But what I do know about insect societies is that there's often a lot of like distributed labor in terms of the colony is essentially a super organism That's the term that biologists use to discuss insect colonies, uh, because natural selection doesn't work on the scale of individual insects, but on the colony as a whole. Uh, The reason for that is because uh, there is this um, huge difference in the reproductive capabilities of certain insects within the colony over others, namely the queen is the one producing, you know, all of the offspring. And the worker, say say ants or, or bees, the worker ants, the worker bees don't reproduce at all, or very, very few of them do. Uh, and so a lot of times in insect societies, it's it, certain insects take care of the larvae and it's not like a fam- familial structure like we have in primate societies where, you know, parents will raise children and uh, care for their own specific offspring, but rather uh, in an insect society, it seems to be more of a distributed kind of process. Uh, And so I think Patty's interactions with the, I don't even know what it was, like, was it a some some kind of officer that was taking notes about her, her larvae. It
1: was somebody well, who ran a nursery, I think, is a what A nursery, they yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, it just, it seemed very transactional and very routine and very yeah. mundane. And And Patty even makes a mental note to herself comparing and contrasting this like tradition of reproduction versus those that she has observed on the Starfleet ship, yeah. uh, the Da Vinci, where she was like, yeah, you know, th- these, these humanoids, these softs, as they call them, yeah. right. Um, where, were softs put a lot of emotion and uh, like, like emotion and feeling into their reproduction. Whereas here it's just like, oh yeah, to fertilize my larvae. And then I'm just going to carry them around. <laughs> and you're going to drop them, them off.
1: And, and, and I think it's also striking that she's like, yeah, and I'm going to drop them off and I'll probably never see them again. I'm like, right. oh, yeah. okay. It's, it's, uh, but, but I kind of like that because it, it made, it made this species feel more alien, right? Mm-hmm. Like they, they don't treat reproduction the way we do and all the things that are around it. And they're just like, oh, I may never see my offspring again. That's just what happens. Moving on, you know, like, yeah. whereas for us, we'd be like, no, oh, that's so sad. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, I, I felt, yeah, I guess as we talk about it, there I think there are some interesting kind of characteristics that you might see in insects that they're kind of bringing forward to this, you know, highly advanced species of insect-like beings. Um, and, and I feel like that's something we've seen a little bit in Star Trek, maybe especially with Enterprise, with kind of the Zindi insectoids, right? Mm-hmm. You saw a little bit of how they are, but I don't feel like we've ever really... Gotten too much into like um, insect-like beings that are on the level of humanoids and what their societies like and how it functions and I, I, maybe that's part of partly because even now it would probably be difficult to have an kind of insectoid <laughs> member of the crew with what you would probably need to do with you know CGI and stuff like that. But I think that's one of the things that re- can be really great about novels. Doesn't matter about casting or how they look or whatever as long as you can imagine it you can put it on the page and talk about it so that and i love the these kinds of stories too where they Kind of go to someone's homeworld and really take a good dive into who they are and what's going on with them.
0: Exactly. Yeah. As I was reading these novellas, I was reminded of the the Titan crew from the Mm -hmm. Titan novels, because there we have this very diverse crew of uh, all sorts of species, some of them not humanoid at all. And, you know, in in a world of TV, it would be hard to pull that off. And some of them are like
1: partly cybernetic and like in a much, I'd say partly cybernetic in like a much more serious way than than seven of nine is kind of mm-hmm. partly cybernetic at that point, <laughs> just like really yeah something that would be probably difficult to pull off on screen but is great just to see that diversity in a novel so Titan's mm-hmm. really great for that yeah
0: yeah and and so the Starfleet Corps of Engineers also also does that, and I guess maybe we can get more of that on screen with the um with the animated shows uh these yeah days. with like
1: Titan being on lower decks right i i i hope <laughs> I've said this on my own podcast, Infinite Diversity, but I hope for the the Titan crew that we see on Lower Decks that we do get some of the characters from the novels, um, and some of the really you know interesting, diverse, unusual crew members because it'd be easier to do an animation. Yeah, absolutely. I hope so, <laughs> yeah,
0: the other scientific things that I wanted to talk about from this novella was so when. Patty is descending into the forest floor trying to locate the source of this toxin before she encounters the Situac and learns the history behind the Nasat and the Situac's truce or agreement. Um, she needs to locate whatever the source of this toxin is, and she comes up with a really intriguing way of doing it, which is basically trying to understand the molecular structure of this toxin molecule uh, and model it to understand how it would respond to different stimuli and she discovers that if you shine a certain wavelength of ultraviolet light on this toxin it will start glowing so that you can actually see it and trace where it where it came from and where it leads to yeah and that seems really brilliant because that is exactly what happens in certain materials here on Earth, uh, especially materials that fluoresce. Um, So they would Mm -hmm. absorb ultraviolet light. Their electrons would get excited to to higher orbitals. And as the electrons cascade back down, they will emit visible light that we can see. Uh, And so this reminded me of a paper that actually came out uh, a couple of years ago where um, some astronomers were theorizing about new biosignatures around other types of stars. And there are these particularly um, active stars that shoot off a lot of flares and a lot of UV radiation. And they hypothesized that if you had a habitable planet around that world, Every time a stellar flare would go off and impact that planet, if there was life there, it would have adapted in a way that it would fluoresce. It would basically absorb this dangerous radiation and uh, protect itself from it, but in the process, essentially emit uh, visible light, the same way this toxin would uh, in this novella. And so... That might be a novel biosignature. tree. You would essentially see this planet light up every time it was hit by a flare, and the biology on it was responding to
1: it. Oh wow, that would be really neat. But yeah, I I, I like that part in this novella because I could just I could just picture it just scanning for something, and all of a sudden it just glows on the tree yeah. or something like that, which is really cool. And at a certain point, that's like glowing all around them, and it just heightens the tension for what's going on. So mm-hmm. I think there's there's a lot of of great great stuff in in this one um yeah because it it does feel like you know patty is an engineer um but she is doing some science to try to figure out this this thing that's going on which is which is great mm-hmm. yeah were there other scientific things you had from this one
0: the only other one that i wanted to touch upon was uh, there was some quicksand at the bottom oh, right of, <laughs> the, uh, of the forest floor that they were getting stuck in and, um, you know, quicksand, at least quicksand on earth has a density of about, of about two grams per cubic centimeter and human beings, we mostly being made of water have a density of around one gram per cubic centimeter. So it's actually impossible for us to fully sink in quicksand because we are less dense than it. Uh, people definitely get stuck in it. They, you know, their legs will get stuck and they won't be able to move, but you, most likely will never drown in quicksand, as is depicted in a lot of fiction. But maybe the Nassat are much denser. Maybe their hard mm-hmm. shells are actually uh, very dense, and that's why they were getting stuck in the quicksand. Yeah. Or maybe on this other world, the quicksand is uh, a lot less dense than it is here on Earth.
1: Oh, that's a good point. But that that's good to know that uh, I can't Probably can't drown in quicksand <laughs> on Earth because yeah. I know as a kid I would have nightmares about that. Like, oh, you could step in the wrong place and it would just take you right under, especially mm-hmm. if you struggle. Um, but, but yeah, the, the Nosset biology could be different. I think what's also cool about them, I don't think it's really covered in here, but and maybe it was a bit in Ishtar Rising, but, but it's established that Patty can survive in a vacuum for a while. Like there's something that she can do to kind of I don't know close up certain openings or whatever, and she can just travel in a vacuum. So it actually she doesn't need a, like uh, an EV suit a lot of the time. She just goes <laughs> as herself and 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 does all these missions and and I think that's really interesting too. But maybe it's possible with that that they're they're denser, they have more armor, or it's harder to get into the areas, or they can hold their breath longer. I don't know. I I still even though this is a species we saw in the animated series, I still find it a little hard to picture sometimes how they kind of function or what they're like. But uh, oh, that's that's really interesting about the quicksand. But yeah, I mean, I think that this just struck me as a really interesting dive into the character and into the home world and the particular things that were going on and the things that were going on in this, this uh, home world in this story and in their society felt, quite different from what we see on screen or even in elsewhere in kind of Star Trek books.
0: Yeah, it was a fun ride and um, a great way to explore a different kind of society. One last thing that I wanted to ask you, Justin, is when you have a world like this where there are multiple sentient species, assuming the Situak are sentient, I, I believe by, by assumption they are because they are able to make a truce it with- uh, seems with like
1: Assad. it. They can, they can communicate it. At- at yeah. kind of our level yeah
0: so the the Nasat joined the federation
1: right it seems like it relatively recently yeah
0: relatively recently yeah and so when i learned that the Situak were also on this world the question that popped into my mind was when you have multiple civilizations on one planet who gets to decide that that planet that whole planet joins the federation <laughs> what do you think justin
1: well, it was unclear to me in this if the Federation even knew that this other species existed. Yeah. So, which, which would also, I mean, uh, yeah, I think we do see it in different places in Star Trek. Oh, you know, they had something to shield them from our sensors and we couldn't see it. But but is the question, like, whether you knew about that, whether you'd have to have both of the species agree to be part of the Federation? I think the answer is yes. Um but yeah, it, it does lead to a question if they didn't know about it before and they know about it now, does that lead to a reassessment of their Federation status? Because they have to get the buy-in of this other species? Right. It's it's a really good question. I mean, I, and I don't, because I, I think it's relatively uncommon in Star Trek that we see kind of multiple sentient species on the same planet. The, the Zindi are one big example, right? But we don't have to worry about them joining the Federation, at least at the <laughs> time that, that we see them in Enterprise. But but i think it's generally just depicted as it should be a unified world under a planetary government and then that planetary government can decide but uh but yeah maybe it would be different if there were multiple sentient species there mhm i don't uh i don't know it's a great question um i did want to mention like i did for ishtar rising last time some other things that i've read from Heather Jarman that I think are are really excellent. There's actually another one in the core of Engineers series much later in the series it's number sixty five <laughs> <That's, laughs> that that's called one zero is better than zero one um, and that's about the binars um, and it goes to the binar homeworld to see what they're like and it's a really super cool story and it's actually a, a takes a place a bit before most of the core of Engineers stories, but that's a really cool one. Um, She also wrote something in Worlds of Deep Space Nine, which is a really cool, um, you know, series of books that just focuses on certain worlds. So this one focuses on Andor as like a novella, which is really cool. And she also wrote something in the Prophecy and Change um, short story collection, which is a bunch of DS9 stories. It's a really great collection. And that was one called The Devil You Know, which was about Jadzia, Jadzia working with the Romulans <laughs> during the Dominion War, I think it is. Anyway, it's, it's so everything I've read from Heather Jarman I've really liked so far. Um, oh, and I should also mention, like we did with Ishtar Rising, so this is part of a particular paperback collection that's called Breakdowns, but again, it's somewhat later in the series, and if you wanted to really start with Corps of Engineers like from the beginning, Have Tech Will Travel is a great place to start and you can kind of go from there. So.
0: Awesome, thanks for those notes.
1: Yeah. I mean, as you can probably tell, I love these Corps of Engineers novellas. I mean, these are a few that I picked out for the science, but they're not even the best stories in the series.
0: <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, I'm just going to add all of those books that you just mentioned <laughs> on, to my list.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah. Just watch out because you may have a long list if you keep asking me about stuff because <laughs> there's so much <laughs> great stuff out there. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so Justin, I know you brought along some honorable mentions from a few of the longer works of fiction, um a couple of Star Trek novels. So, let's dive into those.
1: I did. And and I think I'll say that there there's tons of great science in in the uh the novels and the novellas. I don't want People to feel like I'm just picking these few out because it's the it's the very best. It was just particular to something that's very different from what we see elsewhere. But yeah, I, I did have a few that I told you I considered, but they're much longer works. You know, one is the Destiny trilogy, which is an absolutely amazing, incredible crossover Borg story. It's one of the best things out there. But you know, it's like 1,200 pages, so I don't <laughs> think we could read it for this podcast. But one of the ideas in there that I think is really interesting is there's this species you get to know called the Kaliar. Um and they're made of something called catoms, like artificial atoms. So they are completely composed of kind of this artificial matter. And I And when I read that, I thought that was interesting because like they're not organic, but they're not like the Borg with like organic and kind of the synthetic parts. They're not like androids. They're kind of like in this middle place of this artificially constructed beings. But they're specifically like artificial atoms that have kind of special properties. So I wanted to call that out because I think it's a cool concept. And you've read Destiny, right? So you're Mm -hmm. familiar with that. Did you think that was an interesting concept when you read about it?
0: Oh, totally. Yeah. The idea of programmable matter, you know, in a way, biology is almost programmable matter, or it actually is, you know, and and it evolved over billions of years to essentially be programmable matter, uh, the way that our gene stores information and then that information is translated into the molecules that literally make us who we are, we do have a program and our bodies have been programmed and uh, are continuously growing and yeah. regenerating based on that. But this idea of, of programmable matter uh, in an artificial sense is super intriguing, uh, especially in light of Star Trek Discovery's third season, yes. uh, where you do see programmable matter on, on, on the screen.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting you mention that because, yeah, we see programmable matter in Star Trek Discovery Season 3. Of course, Destiny came, I don't know, 10 plus years before that. Mm-hmm. But I think Destiny takes it a step further because the programmable matter in Discovery Season 3 in the 32nd century is like programmable programming it for, you know, making a a desk or something like that, right? Or a bed or something like that. But we don't see it, at least yet in the show, creating like sentient beings. So right. I feel like in Destiny they even take it like a step a step further for for these these beings. So I wanted to mention that. Another one is from a favorite Titan novel called Orion's Hounds by Christopher L. Oh, I should mention Destiny trilogies by David Mack, who does so many amazing Star Trek novels. But the other one is um Orion's Hounds, a Titan novel by Christopher L. Bennett. So that's the third one in the series. And what I really love about this one is that he takes kind of these space-born creatures and when i say space-born i mean they live in space that we've seen in different parts of star trek like even in encounter farpoint where you see kind of the jellyfish beings right or an episode like tin man and tng where you see this kind of space-faring organism um, that they encounter um and and i think it the crystalline entity is another one right so he takes those ideas where we see the different ones and he kind of constructs not constructs but like the titan visits this area of space that is teeming with these beings that and he coins the term cosmozoans which i really like so there's like this whole ecosystem it's not like what you have typically seen in star trek where they're isolated like oh there's one or two here there there's just like thousands of them and they're interacting as if it's like like an ecosystem on earth where you see interaction between plants and animals and insects and all that kind of stuff. But it's in space that they're doing all this stuff. And there's these sentient species that use them in certain ways. So it's like a super fascinating story and idea of like an ecosystem completely in space. Um, So I don't know if you've read that one, Mike. I I have. Yeah. You Mm -hmm. have. Okay. And I just love that idea and that, and that world. But again, that's a longer novel, but Christopher L. Bennett, is a really great author, I think, for scientific concepts. I think he has a lot of great science. He does a lot of research. And he has some novels for Department of Temporal Investigations where he constructs this whole time travel theory that's absolutely amazing. So it's like the science of time travel in the 24th century. So uh, yeah, anytime, listeners, you can check out like anything by Christopher L. Bennett, you should. But Orion Towns just struck me as one that's really cool with all these creatures kind of interacting in space.
0: Yeah. Some of my favorite creatures in Star Trek are those space born life forms Um, going back to Discovery, getting to see the Gormagander. That was super fun. You know, life in space would completely break everything that we know about how (laughs) life works. But I love that. That's why I enjoy science fiction so much.
1: It would be one of the most amazing discoveries ever. Like, I think it would be one thing to be like, oh, we found some microbes on Mars or some other planet, or there's some humanoid beings like us. But if you found something that was so completely unlike life on here that they live all their life, like in a vacuum, that would just blow things open. So yeah, I love the concept as well. Like if that were true, that would be amazing. And I'm sure we would study that for a long time. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah
0: yeah yeah getting us to think about other ways of being you know as q says other other what is it? other realms of possibility Poss- other possibilities of existence other po- yeah other possibilities of existence exactly yeah that's yeah. uh that's the ultimate goal right to try, oh, and, try to understand
1: and that. if we if we found some kind of omnipotent being like q that would totally blow our <laughs> minds if that was real <laughs> like what yeah. is going how did you evolve what is a how what <laughs> you know indeed like, yeah so anyway, th- those are a couple of honorable mentions. Again, there's tons of different novels and novellas and things like that out there. And I think, as I mentioned before, I've read almost 400 of of these novels and short stories and all that kind of stuff. So always happy if people wanted to connect to ask me questions about what to recommend or about a certain character or species or something like that. Always happy to answer those questions.
0: Well, that segues into my <laughs> question for you, Justin, about where listeners can reach you if they do have questions about the novels or anything related to Star Trek, really. Where, where, where can listeners find your voice and hear your thoughts on the internet?
1: Oh, thank you. So, so first, I do co-host a podcast called Infinite Diversity. That's on the United Federation of Podcast Network. We cover all of the new shows. So, we've covered on that show Discovery season three, Lower Deck season one. Of course, we'll cover all the shows when they come out, I think the next one's going to be Lower Deck season two. So we cover that weekly. And then in between the this sh- this shows, we'll talk about some different topics. We might, like recently, we've been looking back at all the short treks. We might kind of dive into some other, you know, of the newer seasons of Star Trek we haven't gotten to yet. And we also like to talk about the novels. So we did interview James Swallow um, a couple months back about his uh, Titan Picard novel, The Dark Veil. Vale. Um, and we uh, are also I think going to be interviewing Una McCormack about her discovery novel *Wonderlands* coming in June. So, so we like to do that that kind of stuff. I have a lot of fun on that show. If you search for *Infinite Diversity* Star Trek Universe podcast, you'll find us. Um, you can also find uh, me on Twitter. I'm at TrekFan4747. I tweet about nothing but Star Trek there, and I do tweet about the books that I'm reading. So I'll put up like, here's the one I have up next, or I'll put a review. Um, usually composed of many tweets um, about uh, what I'm reading at the time Um, and in addition you can connect with me on Facebook I'm part of three different uh, Star Trek Books groups, um, the Star Trek Books Discussion Group, the Star Trek Books Community Group, and Literally Star Trek. And I post all of my reviews there as well and what I have coming up. And if you're really interested in novels and you're on Facebook, those are really great resources because there's lots of people who have read or are at different parts in their journey for reading novels um, and can help to answer questions or direct to you or you know, let you know about whatever related to the novels because there's so many out there. So that is, I think pretty much all the places you can find me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fantastic. All right, just one last question for you, Justin, and you listen to the podcast, so you know what's coming. Uh, what is one <laughs> thing that gives you hope about the future? Could be related to Star Trek, science, or neither.
1: Yeah, it's, um, it's hard to narrow it down to one thing, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I do really love this question because I think oftentimes it's easy to focus on the difficult things, the bad news. Um, and what I like to say is something can oftentimes be news because it's unusual or rare. Uh, there are exceptions, but but I like to feel like a lot of times what we see is news can be out of the ordinary. Um, so I think there are a lot of great things that are happening every single day and in the interactions among billions of people around the world. So I'd like to keep that. That kind of thing gives, gives me hope. Um, I think also you know star trek and star trek fans give me hope we're thinking about a positive vision of the future respecting other species and that that kind of thing but also i th- i feel like one of the things that that gives me hope is that oftentimes through the greatest adversity can come the greatest progress. And I think we have been through a ton of adversity with the pandemic in the last year or so. And I think that has caused people to rethink a lot of things. I mean, not only about how we deal with infectious disease, but how we deal with, you know, people in different parts of the world, how we deal with poverty, even how we deal with racism and things like that. So it actually interestingly it gives me a lot of hope that we've been through something so difficult that is i think starting to help from what i can see focus people on how we can make things better.
0: That's a wonderful answer. Thanks for that, <laughs> Thanks. Justin. Well, thank you again for joining me on Strange New Worlds to talk about the science of these different books in Star Trek. Uh, as as you know, there are plenty of other books out there, so if there's ever anything else that you want to discuss related to science in Star Trek, and books or science and Star Trek and the movies or the TV shows, you're always welcome to to join me on Strange New Worlds again, Justin.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate being here.
0: That was Trek podcaster and Trek novel enthusiast, Justin Ozer. I owe Justin a debt of gratitude Not just for being my guest on the past two episodes of Strange New Worlds, but also for being such a fantastic supporter of this show throughout its entire run. If you aren't already doing so, please make sure to follow Justin on Twitter and check out the Infinite Diversity Podcast, because Justin is truly one of the most insightful and positive people I know. Special shout out to longtime Strange New Worlds listener, Hawker Goodmanson, who sent me a lovely message saying that Justin and I make a perfect combo because we are champions of the Star Trek podcasting world and that he'd pay to hear us do a regular podcast. (sighs) That is so sweet, but you know, messages like that are payment enough Finally, I can't leave you without mentioning that Justin's wife, Rosie Varela, is a wonderful singer songwriter and the founder of the band Eep, whose work you should also check out. In fact, you already have. The intro and outro music for this episode is Eep's tracks Breathless and Closer, respectively. You can find the link to Eep's website in the show notes. And with that, Stay safe, everyone, and please, please, please get the COVID vaccine when it becomes available to you. We can only fight this thing together. Until next time, see you out there.